Welcome back to Supreme Myths. I am very excited today to have as my guest, uh, Chris Timmons. Chris is a graduate of Vanderbilt Law School, like yours truly, uh, although a little bit later on in time, I'm sad to say. Uh, he worked in private practice at King and Spalding in the Taft firm. He was a prosecutor for 14 years. He is a, he's back in private practice now. He's an adjunct professor at Georgia State, teaching a bunch of courses. He is also, just to full disclosure, the husband of one of my uh, colleagues, uh, Professor Kelly Timmons. And Chris has been a media star over the last month talking about all the Trump cases, and I'm really excited to talk to him today. Chris, thanks for coming on. That's my pleasure. Let's put asterisks beside star because, as my daughter told me, people on the news aren't celebrities. Um, so, you know. <laughs> well, you're a star to me. Yes, I made a number of media appearances, and thank you. You're very kind. <laughs> How old is your daughter? <laughs> so she'd be 15, um, you know, and in that cynical stage. And yeah, I had she's very smart. Out. Yeah. <laughs> my 15-year-old wants to come on my podcast. And I'm trying to figure that out. She wants sure. to talk she wants to talk about abortion and 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 affirmative action from a teenage perspective. We'll see how that goes. Anyway, um Chris, um thanks for coming on. So let's begin here. Why did you become a prosecutor? What made you want to put people in jail? <laughs> well, that, I mean, that wasn't it. What I really wanted to do was try cases. So okay. um, my, my career path's a little tortured. I was a big firm lawyer uh, for the first five years of my career, four to five years. After that, uh, I went to a small firm briefly, uh, decided everyone who was a lawyer in Atlanta was a terrible person. So <laughs> I went into, uh, I, I went into uh, which is not true, uh, but, it, but I went to um, I went into a company called Counsel on Call where I did legal placement, decided that I really was a lawyer like that as we were talking about off air, the godfather, you know, just when I thought I got out, they pulled me back right, in. Right. Um, every prosecutor I met through that process enjoyed their job tremendously. Um, it was just a pay issue. Kelly, obviously, being a, a law professor at Georgia State, we had a little bit more flexibility income-wise. Mm -hmm. I wanted to try cases. Eric, it was supposed to be a two-year detour before I went back to the firms. It ended up being <laughs> 17 and a half. Wow. Okay. Um, before we get, and we're going to get to all the Trump cases, but before we before we yep. get there, um, what is the biggest challenge for a prosecutor in, in a typical a typical kind of um, violence case case involved? What's the biggest challenge? So um, violence cases are a little easier than the white collar cases because okay. in a violence case, the jury cares. Right. Um, I mean, probably the biggest thing for being a prosecutor isn't the trials. It's it's the managing your caseload. That's the thing that you have to learn because and, and it's great to start off as a misdemeanor prosecutor, which I did because you've got 100 new cases coming in every month. That means 100 have to go out Re resolution in some way, please dismissal trials. Um, so that's the hardest thing. But in terms of trying cases, the violent crime, the jury's kind of rooting for you. Um, but, but they're always a little bit skeptical. It's the white collar cases, which I did toward the back half of my career. Those are the more difficult ones. You got to murder somebody. They need to hold somebody responsible right, for it, whether right. it's the victim or the defendant. White collar, you got to keep them interested. An assistant U.S. attorney here in Atlanta who um, used to be a good friend of mine, but Trump broke him, unfortunately, and now he's wrecking terrible damage at Heritage. But I used to have him come to my class um, to talk about being a prosecutor. And again, in the federal system. But one of the things sure. he, he used to tell my class all the time, and I'm, I'm really curious your opinion about this, and then we'll get to Trump. He said that the reasonable doubt thing, you know, he's not, he, he says a prosecutor, he really wasn't worried so much about that. The bigger issue for him, he used to tell us, was unanimity. Because if even one juror doesn't like the tie he's wearing or doesn't like, you know, his attitude or whatever, you know, one out of 12 and he's done, he loses. Um, do you agree with that assessment of the biggest challenge? 
I do. And, and now that I'm mostly on the civil side, it's the same yeah. thing. And I have to tell my clients that, look, we can go to trial. But remember, 12 people agreeing to a pizza topping or a restaurant, you know, for dinner is difficult. Now we're going to give them you know, a, a decision that they've got to make. And these are non-subject matter experts. So, yeah, I mean, it, it's difficult to get jurors. And then there's and there is the nullification factor that's there, too. Even if you prove your case beyond a reasonable doubt, sometimes I lost probably the biggest case of well, not the biggest case of my career, but one of my biggest cases. And it was a slam dunk. I would have bet my house on it, but the jury nullified because they didn't like the sentence that the defendant was potentially facing. They didn't think it was fair. Um, so you can prove your your case beyond a reasonable doubt, and it doesn't matter. As one of my good friends, Henry Thompson, who's a judge up in Cobb County Superior Court now, likes to say, you supply the emotion, they'll supply the logic. <laughs> That's interesting. Um, what case was that? Can you talk about it? Yeah. So that was a RICO case. Um, it was a pill mill case. It started off, um, it, the clinic was in DeKalb County, which is why we had jurisdiction over it. It uh, was investigated by the DEA. Um, love our friends at the uh, federal government, but they passed on it, which is where I've made most of my career was taking cases that the federal government <laughs> was afraid to try. Right. <laughs> um, That's fascinating. And so it's different on the state level. We're, we're aggressive and we're, we're, we're willing to take risks. Uh, the federal government, not so much. But the, um, the the DEA came to us, asked us if we would take it on. It was an old case, um, but we took it on anyway. Uh, the goal in that one, because we had two massive pill mill cases going on, was really to plead it out to, as best we could. And we got everybody to take a plea, except for this one pharmacist. He would not take a, a probation plea because he had immigration issues. And so we ended up trying this RICO case. Um, Wally Davis was on the other side. He leaned over to me in uh, week two and said that they had brought a knife to a gunfight. I mean, we were <laughs> killing them. I, I got the defendant on cross-examination to basically confess. And at the end of the day, we're just stunned talking to the jury afterwards with this not guilty verdict. It's forever burned into my brain when Judge Belay, is now a federal judge, has the verdict form and asks me, you know, if I approved of the verdict. And I'm like, no, there's too many words on it. Um, you know, that not needs to go. But um, <laughs> but yeah, it was a big fat and high guilty. Wow. And it, when we talked to him afterwards, they said they didn't like the fact that the doctor got house arrest and this guy was looking at 20 years to serve. And so what I told them was, well, would it have made a difference if I told you that he turned down a probation offer. And they're like, oh, yeah, that would have made a difference. But they said, we ignored the jury charge that said that you're not supposed to pay attention to sentencing. And so I made a tactical decision because it was going so well and I didn't want to create an appellate issue on talking about that this guy had a probation offer on the table. And so I took a, a risk in the case nullified. Wow. Fascinating stuff. All right. Well, you mentioned yeah. RICO, which is a great which is a great transition. So sure. let's start with the Georgia case. And let's pretend and we're actually not pretending all that much, that I know very little about RICO. Uh, assume the audience knows something, but not much. Sure. W what is the difference in trying a RICO case? How important is it that this case is a RICO case? Um, go ahead and explain that to everybody. Yeah, so RICO is an important statute. I mean, it's funny because there were about three of us that cared about the Georgia RICO statute <laughs> up until about six weeks ago. Right. Now the whole One world does. being John Floyd. <laughs> John, I mean, the reason why I'm getting all this media attention, I've probably been on CNN maybe 25 times in the last five weeks. But the, uh, you know, the, the reason for that um, is because John's referring all the media to me, um, which is I'm, I'm very um, thankful for. But getting oh, back on, to pause, your question. Chris, pause one second. Just so, so. I clerked in 1983 for the Northern District of Georgia. So did John Floyd. And yeah. John and I have known each other for a long time. So first of all, I'm glad John is doing that. That's A. B, um, we'll, get, we'll get to John Floyd after you talk about Rico. Go ahead. I want to talk about sure. John. But first, talk about Rico. Go ahead. 
Yeah. So, I mean, it, it, RICO was created uh, in the early 70s by the federal government to combat organized crime. When the Georgia statute came about in the early 80s, much broader than that. Um, so if you think of a Venn diagram in terms of the federal RICO Act, um, that's a circle entirely subsumed by a massively larger uh, circle that is the Georgia RICO Act. They sometimes refer to the state level RICOs as um, the baby brother. And in, in, in reality, they're the big brother because they're much more powerful. Um, it's a statute that allows you to, as long as there are some similarities or some ties to each other, it allows you to bring a bunch of crimes that would be seemingly unrelated into the same case to give you the opportunity to paint a full picture of what the criminal scheme looks like. A lot of people use the term enterprise. In Georgia, you don't need an enterprise. So I say scheme as opposed to enterprise. Federal, you need an enterprise. That's why it's narrower. That's why it's a smaller circle. Can, what's the, the difference between scheme and enterprise? Enterprise is a group of people. You can scheme by yourself. But for, for RICO requires two people at least, right? No, it doesn't. Not on the Georgia level. It requires that on the federal level. But on the Georgia level, I've done RICO cases against individuals. So there's three portions to the Georgia statute. There's A, B, and C. And the A portion of it, you can you can have an individual. They commit two related crimes to get money. They're technically in violation of the RICO Act. The example I use because it's so extreme, and it's something that you know I need to preface with: there's prosecutorial discretion here, sure. and nobody would ever bring this case. Sure, sure. But if if I walked into a Sears and stole a pair of tube socks, and then walked next door to a J.C. Penney and stole a second pair of tube socks, I could be charged under the Georgia RICO Act. Really? Under subsection A? Yeah, by yourself. It's just two related crimes to get money or property in that particular case, and they have to be certain enumerated crimes, which on the federal level they were referred to as predicate acts. On the Georgia level, they're referred to as acts of racketeering activity. So if you have two related crimes to get property, you technically have a violation of the A section. B is enterprise, which is a group of people. So when you hear when you're when your listeners hear the word enterprise, what they should think is gang or family. That's an that's an enterprise. Right. Or it can be looser than that, but that's what an enterprise means. And then C under Georgia law is to endeavor, which is just attempt. Um, or conspire. It's a conspiracy. So the Georgia RICO Act claim is a violation of C, meaning that they are conspiring to commit B, which is an enterprise. They don't even have to be successful at it. They just have to try and take an overt step. In other words, they have to do something to to move the ball forward to have a, a RICO violation under B. And, and this may be a really dumb question. Is there a way to simply, relatively simply, explain what the RICO charges against Donald Trump, forget the rest of them, just Donald Trump, are like in, in, a, in a late sure. manner? Well, I mean, his, you can't really separate him out because he's, he's, he's accused of being a part of an enterprise. So he's accused of, of, of really conspiring to be a part of an enterprise. He's conspiring to engage in an unlawful overthrow of the electoral process in Georgia and as a result, also the United States of America. That's what it's about. So taking illegal means to to overturn what it, the prosecutors allege was a lawful election. That's really what he's charged with. And he's charged with doing it with a group of people. Chris, wouldn't that also be a violation of the federal RICO? Yeah, sure. I mean, it, it, yeah, it could be. And, and typically, though, um, we use home field advantage. <laughs> when we have a Georgia RICO charge, which is your your typical federal defense attorney doesn't want anything to do with Georgia court. Right. And so if you allege like Hobbs Act or something along those lines, they start to feel comfortable. I never do that. I always <laughs> keep it straight up uh, down the line, Georgia, because it's fun because it's like, you know, it's, you, you ever see those videos of the, like in Brooklyn where you got the play, playground guys going head to head with yes. the 
Um, yeah, so, I mean, you know, that's it. We're the playground. So I could bounce the ball off your forehead, drive down the lane, and dunk <laughs> over my back, and there's nothing you could do about it because you're a Fed. You're used to, to NBA rules. And so it's just keep them, on, keep them on the playground rules if you're in Georgia. Since you raised, we'll take a slight digression here. I was a messenger for a law firm called Winthrop, Stimson, Putnam, and Roberts in New York City. In that 19, is a fancy one. In 1974 and five. And I was just there for the summer, you know, a summer job. There were a lot of kids, black kids, to be honest, who that was their full-time job. And they played basketball at lunch in the playgrounds of New York. And I was okay for my height. So I would play with them. And it was some of the best times of my life. Because not being – the only standard was why I embarrassed myself. And I didn't. And that was fun. And Anyway, <laughs> sorry. Enough about basketball. All right. So No, but that, I mean, that's really it, Eric, is, is that's when you bring somebody who's got almost exclusively federal experience down <laughs> to the state level, they freeze. I mean, you know, because right. they're not used to the – traveling's fine now. I can go behind my back. That's all right. You know, right. there's a lot of things <laughs> that I can get away with on the, the playground. And so they're hampered by that. And that's why you don't want to bring those Hobbs Act claims. You don't want to bring the wire fraud claims. You don't want them feeling comfortable. And that's what John did. Fascinating. I, I'm sorry. I have one more basketball thing I have to say. I apologize. Sure. So um, it's funny because in 19, I was doing this in 1974 uh, with these kids, you know, in the summer in New York. Um, Hall of Fame basketball player Earl Monroe changed the rules in the NBA. Before him, you couldn't palm the ball. You could if you if you if you dribbled the ball at shoulder height and spun, that was a palming violation. He was a superstar. He's in the Hall of Fame, top 75 player. Because he spun all the time, they basically dropped that rule. But 1974 was too current to that. So all I patterned my game after his kind of. So I was spinning all the place. And there was this big argument about am I palming the ball? And my defense was Earl Monroe does it. If he can do this. Why? Anyway, sorry, sorry for that terrible digression. Oh, no, that's all right. That's good stuff. <laughs> um, going back to Rico. Um, why yeah. didn't Jack Smith then charge him with Rico in the federal case? So um, it's funny you mentioned that back in 2016, I, I interviewed with the Organized Crime and Gang Section of the United States um, Department of Justice. Yeah. And so if you bring a RICO claim federally, um, it, as they described the job to me, um, you know, you're basically a vampire. The U.S. attorney has to invite you in, <laughs> and right. but they invite you in if they bring a RICO claim. And so the federal government is reluctant to use the RICO Act unless absolutely necessary. And so here... Uh, and there are a couple other reasons as well. Probably the biggest one would be continuity. So there's a requirement on the federal level that the, the scheme has to last a certain period of time, um, generally at least 12 months, or have the capability of lasting much longer than that. Certainly, huh. you don't want the FBI sitting on the sidelines going, we know there's this massive crime ring going, but guys, let's hit this you know, eight months from now and we know we've, we've passed right. the RICO right. um, statute. But I think here you're talking about probably four months of activity. Um, you know, between November and January, you know, because by the time February rolled around, Trump was out. Right. Um, and so I think that's probably the biggest impediment was that you just don't have the continuity. I technically think John will, will kill me if he hears this podcast. Um, but I think I think Georgia ought to adopt a continuity requirement as well, um, because, like I said, right now I could steal two pairs of tube socks and be charged under RICO. And I, right. I don't think that that's what's intended. I mean, it, right now, the only thing that's protecting us from that is prosecutorial discretion. If we had a situation where, OK, now I'm stealing a pair of tube socks every day for the next 18 <laughs> months. Then um, at that point, we kind of have crossed into, all right, you're not some small times tube socks guy. You're running a sock ring. Right. <laughs> Is it um, is it true that Giuliani really did use Rico effectively to hurt the mafia in New York, or is that a war story he likes to tell? 
I don't know. Um, you know, I, I like to tell the story of Elliot Spitzer, um, who was an idol of mine. Oh, I remember Elliot. Day. Me too. We, wow. And you and I are about 25 years apart. But yeah, no, Elliot Spitzer was a great man. Go. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, he's he was touted as this great white collar prosecutor. OK. And the downfall of Spitzer was the IRS caught him moving $5,000 to a prostitution ring so he could have sex with a prostitute in D.C. Leaving aside the grossness of the prostitute, yeah. if you can't move $5,000 without the IRS finding it, you don't know anything about white-collar crime. I could move $10 million in my sleep um, because I was a white-collar prosecutor. I'm never going to do that. Stealing is yeah, wrong. Maybe, maybe we'll take that line out of this podcast. We'll see. Go on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, but, but so the thing is what that told me was that Elliot Spitzer was a figurehead. Um, you know, and, and not somebody who actually understood white collar crime. And so right. my thought is with Giuliani, I don't know. I mean, I haven't looked at his background enough to know if he actually tried a RICO case. And that I mean, that would be a big difference between him and Fonnie Willis is Fonnie Willis may. You know, we may not see her in the courtroom. We may not see her try a case. But Fonnie Willis has tried a RICO case before. Sure. Um, she, she was involved in the Atlanta public schools case. And so yeah. that that to me shows that you've got somebody who I mean, I think John was probably the architect of the indictment. But Fonnie ultimately had to approve it. And she knew what she was reading at the time. Giuliani, I couldn't tell you if he knew RICO or not. Um, okay. It just depends. Was he a figurehead or was he somebody who actually did it? So so we're about 20 minutes into this and we've already mentioned John Floyd like four times. So that's that's yes. so I, I have some questions about John. Um, sure. And again, disclaimer, friend of mine. I've known him for three decades, you know, not a close, close friend, but we know each other. Um, he's a he's a guy I go to have drinks with usually, if not every quarter, sometimes every month, a lot of times every quarter. He's my mentor. He's one of the most Great. best attorneys I, I know. So yeah, well, I am biased when it comes to John Floyd. Right? No, I'm by. Well, I agree. Um, and um, I the, the lat I have said publicly uh, a number of times. I think I said it on CNN that the last person I want to see across from me, if I'm a RICO defendant in America, may well be John Floyd. Is that a fair statement? I mean, it'd be me and then John Floyd. Okay, <laughs> fair enough. I'll make sure I tell John. I do you have more? I, I mean, John has told me I have more trial experience than I do, but he's much smarter. I have more trial experience than he does, but he's he's much smarter than me. He's going to kill me on the technicalities. Is I mean, I, I can make the jury get excited about it, but yeah, no, no, no. You're right. Actually, John, uh, and particularly pre-trial, nobody better. So and nobody he's written the treatise on it, right? I mean, he's written a book on it. Yeah. Rico. Okay. So yeah, I actually own it. Yeah, so I mean, question. I should have brought it so I could ha ha show it up. Yeah. Right. So here's my question, and and we're having fun, and I, and you know, given everything happening in this country, in this world, having fun is is not a crime. It's not a rico crime. It's not any crime. Right. But, but on, not, on, not, on, on a slightly more serious, on a slightly more serious note, how common is it for DAs to be assist? John is John works for a law firm called um, Bondurant, Mixon and Elmore. It's one of the elite small firms in Atlanta. Emmett Bondurant's a hero of mine, a close friend. Um, has argued two voting rights cases about 40 years apart, which is an amazing thing. It's a great law firm. Emmett's retired. Um, how common is it for the DA to reach out to private practice and pick someone out who really is an elite lawyer? I mean, Bondurant's an elite firm and John's an elite lawyer. How common is that? And frankly, it scares me. I'm, I'm happy John is on this case, but it scares me a little bit. <laughs> So, I mean, a couple of things about that. I, I um, when I was doing RICO cases, particularly when I didn't have the resources, I did reach out to John in the Bondurant firm, um, and he would sometimes loan me associates. And the the deal. What does there that was, mean? Loan you associates? Who pays them? Uh, the firm does. The government does not. Okay. Um, so they, they are essentially interns. They're special assistant uh, 
district attorneys or special assistant U.S. attorneys sometimes as well. And so what the firm gets from that is experience. I, I put this uh, young associate, I put her in front of a grand jury. That's, you know, that's her on her feet in an important situation, which is not experience that she's going to get at Bondurant, Mixon, and Elmore. Delta is not going to pay right. to have a, you know, third year associate arguing right. before a court. That's just not going to happen. And so the way for them, what, what Bondurant gets, John does it in part so that his associates can get that kind of experience. But John also does. And we've talked about that before because he feels it's the right thing to do. And the other thing John told me was this, you know, karma, God, whatever you want to call it. Every time he does one of these, his firm has a record year for profits. Even though, he, um, even though he's not getting paid at all for this. No, he's not getting paid. He may be getting paid a little bit for this one. I don't know. But right. uh, but I know he's not been paid in the past. Does he have a um, title? And, does he have any kind of title in this case? Yeah, he's a special assistant district attorney. That's um, we swear him in. Special um, assistant that. district attorney. So, and so, do you remember during the uh, like when we? I mean, when the economy fell apart in nine and ten, a lot yeah. of the law firms told their their associates that we cannot hire you this year. We'll hire you, you know, in two years. We'll give you a reduced salary to go um, do something else, like right. some sort of volunteer work. We had two from Brian Cave that worked for us. I, one, Jacqueline Shell is a close friend now, huh. um, but she got to try jury trials. I think she had three or four of them which was more than most of, actually probably more than almost the entirety of, of Brian Cave. I mean, so right. she comes in with this incredible experience. We got an extra uh, set of hands and a really big brain to come in and help us out. Um, so it worked out for all involved. And she was a special assistant district attorney. Chris, I want to circle back to something you said earlier, just because I think, based on my Twitter feed anyway, a fair number of law students listen to this podcast. So I want to ask you about this. You said sure. that you became a prosecutor mostly to get actual trial experience. Um, yes. when I, when I finished my, my clerkships, I went to Gibson Dunn and Crutcher for a year and a half and did nothing, like nothing, you know. So I, I wanted, I didn't care about trial experience, but I wanted real lawyering experience. So I went to the Department of Justice where I, the very first day, I'm thrown into this huge case involving all-terrain vehicles and I'm negotiating with Yamaha and Honda and partners from Covington and Burling and I'm 29. I have no idea what I'm doing. I mean, I got four years of great experience. Um, can you make a pitch for working for the government in any capacity? I don't really care. And the benefits that come with that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it's a fantastic part of your career. I'm not sure if it's I, I think the way you did it. I think the way that I did it, if you have the opportunity, is the way to do it. Yeah, because you want that cr big firm credibility, yeah. um, which, you know, paid dividends. I can't tell you I was at King and Spalding for all of a year and a half. And I can't tell you the number of times I've still been referred to, you know, what, 20 years later as a King and Spalding right. attorney. Right. And, and so it's sort of that presumption of credibility. But that said, yeah, absolutely go to government. And I tell my advocacy students that, you know, you should you're not going to get the kind of experience that you're going to get in a firm that you are in government. And the best example I have for that was it was a gambling machine case that I was arguing before the Georgia Supreme Court. Chris Inolowitz, great lawyer. Um, now, one of the defense attorneys in this case um, was carrying Mike uh, Bowers's bags. Um, he and I were roughly the same. I mean, literally carrying Mike right. Bowers's bags. Didn't right. get to say a word in front of the Georgia Supreme Court. He and I are roughly the same level. I'm arguing head to head with Mike because I'm representing the government. Yeah. And so I, I had the same experience. exactly what you yep. talked about. Yeah, I had the same experience. Um, I literally, a week after I started that job, was around the table with 50 and 60-year-old partners from Washington, D.C.'s biggest law firms trying to negotiate a settlement to save children's lives. You know, I mean, it was an amazing thing. Um, I got more experience in one week at DOJ. This is not a knock on Gibson Dunn. It's a great law firm. Sure. I, but, but a year and a half, one week, I got more experience. It was really something. 
Yeah, I mean, and, and just so your, your students may not be uh, familiar, but Mike Bowers was the former attorney general of the state of Georgia and the very famous case of Bowers versus Hartwick. He is the Bowers. So, well, yeah, I, 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 he and I went head to head. It was contentious at the time. Now, we, we I, I really like Mike and I enjoy when I see him. Well, Mike changed a lot, but that's a different conversation for a different yeah. day. <laughs> um, I have told the story here, though, um, speaking of Bowers versus Hartwick. So I, that case was in the Northern District of Georgia when I clerked there. Oh, and, wow. and Judge Hall, who was a pretty liberal judge, Democrat liberal judge, had the case and at the trial level. And one day his law clerk, a woman named Carolyn Wood, came into my um, office across the hall. I was cooking for a different judge in absolute tears because her judge said, we're not going to even decide this case. The Supreme Court issued a summary affirmance 25 years ago about the issue of having gay sex in private. Um, and I'm just going to write a one sentence. I'm bound by this old Supreme Court decision, which he really wasn't, but he said he was. My, my friend was just livid about it and upset, although she loved the judge. Um, went to the 11th Circuit. It's all history from there. But anyway, um, yeah, I'll never forget the day she came to my office and said, this case Bowers versus Hardwick is, is making me cry. <laughs> I said, I'm, I'm sorry about that. Anyway, going back to Trump and this case, um, I have a couple kind of technical questions about having a case with 19 defendants. First of all, so, t so two of them are going to be tried first, right? Right. When does that start? October 23rd. Okay. I'm and, looking and is it really going to that. start October 23rd? Like, is that really going to happen? It has to. It has to. There's no choice. So in Georgia, um, there's the you know the Eighth Amendment right to speedy trial that everybody right. knows about. Georgia yeah. has a different speedy trial demand statute that is unique to Georgia, and that uh, has to do with terms of court. And so, if you file a speedy trial demand, you are saying to the government and the judge as a defendant, "I am ready to go right this second. There are jurors in 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 the courthouse. If we need to go, we can go immediately. Call the state, come down to the courthouse. We're going to start picking a jury." So you, you file that. And so if you file that, the case has to be tried either in the term of court that you're in now or the term of court after it. The terms of court differ on the size of the judicial circuit. Atlanta's broken down or, or the state of Georgia's broken down into judicial circuits. The bigger the judicial circuit, the smaller the time of period for the term of court. So in the big counties like Fulton and DeKalb, Cobb, it's a two month term of court. And so this speedy trial demand was filed in what was referred to, or these two speedy trial demands were filed in what was referred to as the July term of court, which means that it's got to be tried. It was filed at the end of August, so it either had to be tried right then in August or the next term, which was September, October. The new term of court starts November 6th. So if they don't start trial before November 6th, then by operation of law in the state of Georgia, they are not guilty. Their case is dismissed. Wow. And so double, and double jeopardy attaches? Uh, yeah, no, it's gone. I mean, there, there is, yeah, it's by, you cannot bring that charge. So they have to start by, um, and then, so that's why the October 23rd date is set in stone. If either of the defendants ask for a continuance, that's a waiver of their speedy trial demand. If they enter a plea, obviously there's no yeah, need yeah. for trial. Might they ask for a continuance? Maybe, is this a bluff? Am I, I don't know. Um, I think they like the idea. Of, who, are the, who are the two, by the way, just so the audience, who, who are the two? Yeah, yeah. So it's Chesboro, and I've heard that pronounced different ways, but I'm going to go with Chesboro. I don't okay. know him. Um, and then uh, Sidney Powell, though, and they're both attorneys. And I think what they're trying to do strategically 
Um, and we can get into whether it's a defense or not, but because I don't think it is. But they're trying to avoid the other defendants raising what's called an advice of counsel defense, meaning I thought what I did was legal because my lawyer told me I could do it. Well, who are the lawyers that told them they could do it? <laughs> Among them, Chesborough and Powell. And so if you're sitting there at the table, you know, the risk is that everybody's pointing a finger at you saying, you told me to do this. Why am I here? And so, and the other thing is, the bigger the group, the more likelihood of somebody else's dirt getting on you. Um, so, you know, the fact that the jury may hate Trump and you're sitting at the at the table with them, that you might sort of a guilt by association type scenario. So, I, I think it's a strategic move. What, where I think that they, what they're what they're also trying to do is, you've got some time during jury selection, although not as much as you might expect. Um, you've got some time during jury selection. Uh, to to prepare your case. And so, you know, you, you go home at night after you're done talking to the jurors, it takes about five minutes to review the 12. After that, you've got time to read documents and figure out what you're doing. Can you? Um, so, yeah, um, that's great stuff. Can you can you explain yeah. to the audience how it, it'll work picking a jury in Georgia? And I assume whatever procedures there are for um, these two lawyers same procedures if and when Donald Trump ever goes to trial in Georgia. So so what what are the procedures? Sure. So they differ um, all over the place. I mean, you know, and, and so one of my favorite phrases is a good lawyer knows the, the law, a great lawyer knows the judge. Yes. Um, and I don't well, mean that in terms of, you know, your buddies. But what I mean by that is, you know, the judge's tendencies, you know what the judge is going to well, do. Well, of course, of I'm a legal realist from head to toe. So, you know, that's my motto. Go ahead. <laughs> Yeah. So so um, so you need to know what the judge is going to do. And here, um, based on a conversation that I had recently with Judge McAfee, mm -hmm. what he's going to do is he's installing clocks like a federal um, what some of the federal judges have. And he's going to give each side an hour to ask the questions that they want, their general questions, as well as their follow up questions. And so uh, based on what he's saying. What I'm envisioning is he's he'll probably bring in all the jurors, not not every single one of the jurors, but the jurors that they're going to question that day, right. um, whether it's 50 or 75. He'll bring them into the courtroom, make sure they hear the indictment all together. Then after that's done, he's going to release them. He's going to bring in the first 12 and he's going to set the clocks. And so state goes first. Ask your questions. You know, so you're going to do general questions and then individual follow up right afterwards. When the clock runs out, you're out of time. Then wow. the defense will go. They'll ask their general questions. They'll ask individual follow-up after that. When they're done, they'll hear arguments over strikes for cause, meaning that this, these people are so biased and unfair that they cannot be a part of the jury. And once that's done, then the, whatever qualified jurors they have after that will be jurors, you know, after the first panel, one, two, three, and four, right. probably. Right. And then you bring in the next group and you just keep going until you've got enough um, to cover all the strikes and the alternates. So I have like a thousand questions about that process, but we're not going to do all thousand, but here's oh, come on. Well, we could do an entire episode on jury selection. Well, well I'm teaching I'm, that class this semester at Georgia State. It's fine. <laughs> well, for this case, it's really interesting. Whether it is Trump or these two lawyers, I don't think it matters. I don't think it matters. I could be wrong. Tell me if I'm wrong. So can I, if, if I'm a defense attorney representing any of the 19 defendants in this case, am I allowed at any point, and am I allowed to ask a potential juror, have you ever worked in a political campaign? That's fine, but you can't talk about political affiliation. That's where the line is. So, so you're not so allowed they, to ask so wait, so wait. Democrats. So my question is: Have you worked on a political campaign? Answer: Yes. I can't say which one. 
Well, if you can ask probably whether they worked on the Trump campaign, and you could probably ask whether they worked. I, I, but beyond that, I'd be scared about asking the question about the Biden campaign, because um, that's a little a little different, um, you know, because then you're getting into political affiliation. But when you're talking about Trump, you're talking about a specific defendant there and some biases that you might have as a result. And let's talk about a really specific nitty gritty question. So someone says either I worked on Trump's campaign or my brother-in-law worked on Trump's campaign, whatever. Um, can you then say something to the effect of, um, I'm not going to ask you whether you supported Donald Trump or not, but having worked on his campaign or having a spouse or brother work on the campaign, can you be objective in this case? Is that the kind of question? Yeah, you have to ask that question. You I mean, can. that's the question at the end of the day is, can you be fair? I mean, that, okay. that's that's the ultimate question with every juror. And you're going to hear that a lot. I mean, that's, you know, you'll... Yeah, the refrain, and I could say it in my sleep because I've picked so many juries, but it's, you know, can you take the law as it comes from the judge? Can you take the facts as it comes from the witness stand and render a fair decision? That's it. That's all we're asking you to do. Um, can you do that? That's and all. of course, <laughs> everybody has a a natural tendency to want to say that they're fair, no matter how biased they could say. Yeah, I mean, I know that my, my uh, brother is the victim of this murder and I can't stand the defendant, but I could be fair. I mean, you know, right. it's just kind of kind of how um, we're wired. Nobody ever wants to admit they're unfair unless they're trying to get out of jury duty, which may be the case in this one because it's going to be a long trial. So, well, so so if a juror says voluntarily in response to some other kind of question that they are a Trump supporter or a Trump hater, either one. Right. I think most people in America are one of those two things. I've yet to meet the person who's ambivalent or neutral sure. towards Trump. Um, if they say, if they have some connection to politics in that way, but then say, but I can be fair. This is different. I'm not voting for a president here. I, I understand what a jury trial is. I'm going to weigh the law and the facts and say, you know, blah, blah, blah. But yes, I happen to be a huge Trump supporter. Is that, is that, is that, a, is that a for cause dismissal? Is that a preemptory? What is that? I mean, it's borderline. And so, you know, and, and it's it's a judge's discretion as to whether they believe them when they say that they can be fair. Right. It's not that you, I mean, I think everybody thinks, you know, well, if they know the defendant, then they're out. That's not true. I mean, you would never be able to get a jury in a small town because everybody knows everybody else. Right. Right. Uh, and, and so it's not, do you know the defendant? Do you know something about the case? Would it, would it really, the question is, okay, what you've heard in the media, you know, what what you've seen. And I've tried to high profile, locally high profile cases that have gotten extensive media question or media coverage. And usually about in those cases, half the jurors are familiar with the defendant and are familiar with the case. But it's, you know, you, you kind of ask them, all right, well, you, you read this in the newspaper. You understand that that's hearsay. I mean, you're getting a condensed curated version that comes at it from a reporter. And no matter how unbiased they try to be, you're still not getting all of the facts. And so you understand, and I always say, I put in air quotes, you know, you know about the case, but you really don't. And so can you put aside what you may have? And then I put it in uh, quotes again, learned about this case right. based on that, set that aside and make a decision based on the evidence that you hear. Uh, and then through the lens of the, the law that is given to you by a judge. And so, so and you, but you are going to have, I mean, I'm like, and we all are on social media. And I think right. even today I was telling somebody, you know, look, dude, you, you haven't, uh, what's her name? Cynthia Hightower or whatever, who came out with the book and this guy's condemning her. I'm like, well, did you listen to her testimony? I was like, he's like, well, no. I'm like, then dude, you're a parent. You're not, you're not a <laughs> rational thinker. I'm dude, not saying believe her testimony, but great listen line. to it. Dude, you're a parent. That's going to be the name of this podcast. Dude, you're a parent. Um, all right. So regular listeners here know that I've said before that with my guests, I usually send a very rough roadmap, you know, and we, and we have broad areas we're going to talk about. And then we always veer off. We're about to veer off because awesome. there's, Let's do there's it. something I want to ask you that, that, that I, I, I want to try to articulate, um, 
I want your perspective as as both a prosecutor, but also as someone who is really familiar with the criminal law and criminal justice systems, at least in the state of Georgia. Um, sure. So, so, so here's my. So, I was actually contacted by the lawyers for Chessboro um, to help them with issues involving some some stuff, and and I, I said no. Um, I don't. I'm not interested in helping uh, for money or otherwise. I wasn't interested in helping. Um, and they got kind of mad at me <laughs> because this is what I said to them, and I want your reaction. And I, I, the audience may hate me for this. I have no idea, but this is what I said to them. I said, I understand that every defendant in this country has a right to an attorney, including Donald Trump, and that I understand that criminal defense attorneys have this view that everyone has a right to an attorney and they're not going to pick and choose their cases based on the moral turpitude of the people they're representing because otherwise we wouldn't have defense attorneys and we need defense attorneys. And I, I get all of that and I'm on board with all of that. I feel strongly. I, thank God there are people like that. I would never want to do that job. Thank God there are people like that. That's the one hand. <laughs> on the other hand, it feels like to me that you don't have to take every case and that um, you don't have don't react to this part. But in my view, Donald Trump is an existential threat to this country and to this world. And so I did say to them at one point, you know, I, I understand what you guys do and thank God you do it. I don't know if that means you have to take Donald Trump as a client because what you're doing is threatening America by taking Donald Trump as a client. Can I ask you your reactions to that? Am I out, totally off base on this? Sure. Am I? No, I mean, look, I won't represent a child molester. I don't do much, you know, criminal work because right. I find child molesters reprehensible. Right. I, but I get, I respect both the people who prosecute them and the people who yeah. defend them. They needed yeah. a rigorous defense because not everybody who's charged with child molestation sure. did what they did. And and so I get what, where you're at. I mean, for me, I got approached by uh, four defendants after the case came down to see if I would represent them. And, yeah. and my response back to that was more sort of personal in that. Um, John Floyd's a friend. Right. Um, he has re re he has refused to take cases when I was a prosecutor mm -hmm. um, because he didn't want to you know go against me and I don't want to go against him. And so and my concern was even if I'm representing somebody who's not you know the former president of the United States, I'm still going to get thrust to the forefront. I'm going to be the guy that's going to be arguing on the RICO stuff, and I would have to do that on behalf of my client to represent them zealously. Um, so, you know, I, I, I get where you are. I mean, and, and I think I, where I, I come down with you is that the other thing is you kind of almost have to buy in to your client to represent them. And if, right. if you don't like your client, I don't think you can do an effective job if you're sort of rooting against them even <laughs> subconsciously. Right. Um, so I think it was a wise decision on your part not, yeah. not to take the thing because I, I don't think your heart would be in it. And if your heart's not in it, then you're not going to do a good job. Is there anything unethical or wrong? I'm sorry, this is a dumb, I apologize to my audience and to you. This is a dumb question, but I'm not a criminal law professor. Is there anything unethical about it? So I'm, I'm, a, I'm a criminal defense attorney. I have my shield out. I represent a bunch of people. Someone comes in and says, um, I'm, uh, they're, they're charging me with, with, um, arson. Can't I say to them, look, um, I represent all kinds of people, but I had this personal thing about arson, whatever I lost, or whatever. I don't want you to take your case and I'm really sorry. Is there anything unethical about that? No, not at all. I mean, you, you know, 13th Amendment of the United States Constitution says we <laughs> right. don't have to take every case. Right. Um, right. You know, and, and so, no, I won't represent. I mean, I do a very little bit of criminal law. Um, you know, it kind of keep a toe in. And it's usually because it's got a corporate angle to it. Like we're right. more interested in doing their civil litigation. But right. if, or if they're a client that we represent all the time and they've got an issue with sure. one of their employees, I'll, sure. I'll handle their speeding ticket or whatever comes down the road. Uh, I won't handle child molestation cases. I, and, I, and I'm I, assuming there are some civil cases you wouldn't take, possibly. 
Yeah, I mean, you know, and, and, and even they're probably less likely to, sure. to have some concerns about it because sure. we're talking about money as opposed to a child molester right. going out there and molesting again. Right. Um, and and every and there it's 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 a matter of if if my client is reprehensible, then we're not talking about a trial. We're talking about how much money um, that they're going to you know have to right. pay. And, and and you know, companies are made up of people and shareholders, and and so I don't have a problem with that whatsoever. Um, okay. Now, Dow Chemical maybe, and I'm saying hypothetically, I don't know if they are, but if they're poisoning a bunch of people, I might have some concerns about that if they're not going to stop. Right. Um, that's right. probably a case I would walk away from. Right. Um, you probably can't answer this question, but I think my audience would be mad if I didn't ask it. So I'm going to ask it and you can answer it or not. And no, won't, sure. won't hold it against you. Um, so you are a RICO expert. You are an expert on Georgia law. You are a former prosecutor, longtime former prosecutor. How strong a case is this against Donald Trump in Georgia? Oh, I could. I mean, I can answer the okay. question. No, yeah. no, no, no problem. I mean, look, we talked about John before. Yeah. All right, we none of us have seen any evidence, but John has seen all of the evidence. Right. John didn't bring this case if it wasn't a strong case. That That's what I've been telling people. Case. What I've been telling people yeah. is, I know John Floyd. He's not going to back a loser. He doesn't do that. It's not. It's not his DNA. <laughs> It, there's there like I mean I, I'm not going to get into my feelings on the former president, yeah. but if you don't approve of what the former president is doing, it it truly is we are in a if you shoot at the king, you better kill him type scenario. And so if you bring but, a case, oh, no, that, that went by quickly. It, if you shoot at the king, you better kill him. I got it. Go right. ahead. Yeah. And and so the situation you have here, and again, I'm not giving my opinion about the former president because sure. it's not appropriate for me to do so. Sure. But um, you are by bringing this case in Fulton County. And John and I had this discussion and and um, you are it's a televised trial. Right. And I think it's highly likely that the former president is going to take the opportunity. It's going to be a campaign stump for him. I wouldn't be surprised if he testified for two straight weeks. You and, think he's going to take the stand? Absolutely. Yeah. I, every white collar uh, case I almost ever did. I got good at cross-examination. Most Prosecutors don't have to cross-examine because in violent cases and drug cases, they don't testify. White collar, every single one of them. What will probably happen, and it, it typically plays out, is the the, the white collar criminal who uh, knows better than their attorneys is pissed off at the way the case is going, so they take matters into their own hands by testifying. And, and also, it's the ego thing. I mean, just you, you, these folks cannot help themselves; they will take the stand. But Chris, hold on, hold on. I got to push back on this a little bit. If you're sure. Donald Trump's lawyer, I understand right. it's the client's right. I, I get that. But if you're Donald Trump's yeah. lawyer. Don't you have to try everything you can to get him not to take? I mean, he's going to be destroyed on cross examination I can cross-examine Trump and destroy him, I think. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I'm not sure he's going to answer any of the questions on cross. I, I really, I, I think there's a, um, I think we're going to be in a situation where he's not going to answer most of the questions. What does that mean? I, mean, he takes the fifth, you mean? No, I mean, like, just evade the question. Like, just, you know, um, the prosecutor asks him, where were you on January 6th? And he says, you know, it's a great stake. Tell you what, I've been to Bones in Atlanta. That's a great stake. Can't, can't the judge make him answer? Yeah, they can. But the only remedy is striking the direct. And if the if the judge strikes Trump's direct, then he's going to scream he got an unfair trial. Wow, that's fascinating stuff there. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think I think there's a I, I mean, I wouldn't put money on it, but I think there's a strong likelihood of that happening. If he um, so, if we know in advance that he is going to testify, let's say, at 10 o'clock on a random Thursday. Don't you think that'd be the most watched thing on TV in the last 50 years, probably? That's exactly why he wants to testify. 
he's going to. I mean, because it's it'll be watched not just in the United States. This trial is way bigger than OJ. Right. People only cared about OJ Simpson in the United States because he was an American football player. Nobody right. in Spain and France cares. Right. I've done international interviews about this case. I've done interviews in France. I've done and I did Al Jazeera. Every and and you know um, Eric from having traveled when you're abroad and you just flip on the TV you, when he was president you saw Donald Trump on there despite the fact that he's not the president of Croatia right um, and and so all every TV in the entire world is going to be glued on Donald Trump when he testifies absolutely and he's going to take the opportunity to do so he cannot help himself so Chris I just want to pause for a moment because um, I'm from Long sure. Island and I and I and I um. I've known about Donald Trump for a long time. And um, in 1989, with the whole Central Park Five incident, um, I've hated him ever since. I've known he's a malignant, you don't have to comment on this. I, I know he's a malignant okay. narcissist, which is the worst kind of narcissist. What makes me crazy is this idea that he's gonna have the biggest stage, maybe ever, <laughs> to tell yes. his side of the it story. And that, I, I guess, no one has no one has worked more for for not no one but few people have worked more for cameras in courtrooms than I have, especially the Supreme Court. But it transcends the Supreme Court. I'm in favor of cameras in the court everywhere. This kind of scares me. Does it scare you at all? Well, I won't comment on that. Okay. But um, but I, but I will tell you that I I think it is. I, I think he does want to testify. I think he wants that platform. Eric, there's two there's two different cases. I learned this from doing high profile cases. Um, and when you're dealing with somebody who is high profile, somebody with a big reputation, the the criminal case is secondary. The, their reputation and the opportunities that the case gives is primary. So I did a case. I won't mention the name, um, but it was somebody who uh, it was a, it was a retrial. Um, we he narrowly escaped eleven to one on a nullification thing. We picked a jury that was hell bent on convicting him. We could tell my boss and I was pissed about this at the time because I I wanted the conviction. But my boss, who was trying to kiss with me, walked over to the defense table and offered the defendant a misdemeanor in probation, told him, you walk out of this courtroom. Everybody knew if he went forward, he was going to get convicted. Everybody knew he was going to prison. He chose prison over admitting that he was wrong. Wow. And okay. he chose to testify a second time. Got destroyed on cross. Well, uh, this, yeah. This is interesting. I'll tell you why. I'm about to reveal something else. Maybe I shouldn't, but I don't I don't care anymore. So I was, at, I was actually contacted by Trump's lawyer. I gave an interview to The Messenger. My, one of my colleagues, Karen Morrison, had about 27 lines in that interview, in that thing. I had one, one, one or two. And <laughs> it um, one, say again? It happens. Yeah. I've no, given no, 45 no, no. I again, I'm not a criminal law professor. Sentence. So I, I, you know, Karen is, you are. So anyway. Karen's so, great. So they, they misquoted me too. But leaving that aside, the quote was something to the effect of, I'm not, I'm not sure if Trump's lawyers are savvy enough to do X, Y, or Z. I forget what the end of it was. So the right. lawyer writes me and says, and, and just just yells at me and just, you know, I, you know. Was it Sadow or Jennifer? Let me duck that question, okay? Um, All right. But 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 one of them, and, and they know who I am, and they're like, you have no criminal law experience. What are you doing, you know, opining on this kind of thing and so on and so forth? My response was I wasn't opining on criminal law. I was opining on removal and immunity federal court jurisdictional issues of which I am an expert. I don't opine on criminal law. I know nothing about sure. it. But interestingly enough, there was an implication later. Well, well, this was so strange. So one of them, so the person who wrote me says, off the record, comma, we were never on the record. Like, I don't know this person. Right. I had never met this person in my life. Um, they had just been yelling at me on the, on the email for, for saying this one line, which was actually a misquote anyway, but it doesn't matter. Um, I don't really care. Um, 
there was a strong implication they're not going to make a removal motion. And I kept thinking, why would they didn't say they weren't doing that? It was, but there was an implication right. they might not. And I'm and and so I'm trying to figure out why in the world would Trump not make a removal motion? And there can only be one explanation for that. He wants it on TV and he wants to testify. Well, there's two reasons. I mean, that that's right. The other one is he doesn't like losing. Right. Um, and so if he files that motion, it's a loss. And he, I don't think he I don't think he publicly wants a loss. Do you think he's sophisticated enough to understand that if he makes a removal motion, it'll probably lose and blah, blah, blah? I mean, he, he was waiting to see what happened with the first one, yeah. I think, was what was going yeah. on. And then now we have the pattern that it's a okay. loser. This is So, yeah, I mean, I, like he's the I mean, say what you want. And, and the man is I agree with you. Probably the most brilliant marketer to come along ever. Yeah. Um, I mean, he's he is incredibly sophisticated when it comes to managing his reputation and he's not going to take a loss. So and and I do think he wants to testify on television. I've said that everybody's like, oh, he's not going to testify. I have a bet with some of my college buddies. I'm going to get two uh, steak dinners out of this um, when he takes the stand. I mean, you know, so it's like, guys, I've prosecuted so many of these. I can tell you he is going to take the stand. Um, Before I talk to you today. I would have bet a lot of money that he would not take the stand. And you've yeah. now can well, that's a smart move, but it, that's you, 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 everybody's paying attention to the wrong trial. Yeah. It's the court of public opinion. Right. No, worry you, about that. You're right. No, I think you're definitely right about this. Um, and maybe that's why they have not yet filed a motion to remove because maybe it, I think you're right about that too. I hadn't thought of it, but I, I think that's it. Um, it is that, yeah, no, he wants to testify. He wants his, he wants his side. I mean, you know, he's going to, there are going to be a, uh, the guy, like I said, best marketer I've ever seen. There are going to be people who are going to watch that testimony and decide that there was election fraud in Georgia based on what he says. You, uh, you don't have to respond to this, but sure. um, all of the words you just used to describe him, I, I think are, 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 I think he's a savant when it comes to knowing how to appeal to, don't respond to this, the lowest common denominator of people. I think that's what Celebrity Apprentice was. I think that's what this is. Um, and I, it's not skill. I think he just has this savant ability to do that almost like autism. I mean, it's just, I don't know, you know, because he's not, he's neither educated nor smart. <laughs> so um, he's clever. Well, I mean, Eric, I can relate because people keep putting me on TV and I have no training. It's just something <laughs> that comes naturally to me. And so, and we're here today because I have no training in podcasts. It's just something that comes naturally to me. And so, yeah, I get it. It's, yeah. it's, it's not, it's, you just, you just you, you just can get it. And well, so, I yeah, the guy, whether it's nat- nat- nature or smarts, there's, I've never seen, I, I don't know, maybe P.T. Barnum. You're right. I and mean, who's the best marketer that's right. that's ever been out there? The guy is, and maybe genius is the wrong word, but but he is phenomenal. And like I said, maybe the best ever. So, Chris, a few weeks ago, um, I wrote a blog po- post that got a little bit of attention Um among law, got a lot of attention among law professors. And, and, and the subject of the blog post was the difference between being an academic and being a pundit. And in that blog post, I talked about the issues I have when I go on CNN or whatever, um, trying to maintain academic status and academic integrity, um, as a pundit. And there are a lot of issues there. I don't have to go into that. You are a, um, prominent lawyer in Atlanta. You are now you are now a national TV star. Um, so I have two questions because you've really been on, on all these shows for the last month all the time. I have three questions about that. I guess one do yeah. you one do you enjoy it? Two do you have to be careful? I, I'm I'm careful about interchanging the pundit and academic hats. Do you have to be careful about the lawyer versus pundit 
hats. That's my second question. And third, how do you have time to be doing all of this? Because I know you're a really busy guy. So those are, can you take all three of those? <laughs> yeah. Sure. So first of all, I love it. Um, it's it's the opportunity. So Eric, I love the law. Yeah. Um, I'm a lawyer through and through. And so the opportunity to show people about the American justice system, warts and all, I, I think it's gotten a bad rap um, and, and undeserved bad rap. I mean, there are issues with the American justice system, particularly with implicit racial bias. I'm, I'm not going to step away from that at all. And by the way, but, sorry, 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 to- sorry, I have to interrupt. Implicit racial bias in the American justice system from a prosecutor of 14 years. Go ahead. Yeah, no, it's there. I mean, and, and it's because it's a human system um, and, and humans have their biases, yeah. but it's the best system we have. Uh, and, and I think it's probably the best in the world. And so this is an opportunity for me to talk about the legal system that I love and, and about the, the, all the protections that are built in. I mean, beyond a reason, why, I, 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 was, I, I get every year when I teach advocacy, my, my students that play the state are talking about how unfair it is. And I'm like, yes, it's supposed to be. <laughs> it, it should be really hard <laughs> for us to put somebody right. in prison. It should right. be very, very difficult, yeah. and it is. Yeah. And all the rulings that, we, that you're going to see in this case are probably going to go, m- many of them are going to go against the state, and that's okay. They should go against the state. It should be very hard um, to to convict Donald Trump and the other you know 18 defendants that are with them because that's our system, and that and that's the system I love. So I have, the, I have this massive opportunity um, to explain things to people um, that, and, and get them to understand exactly why things are there. And so, yeah, I love I love it um, for that reason, if, if for no other. It's like having a class of 8 million people when I was on David Muir and no papers to grade. Um, so, you know, and I love being a teacher just like you do, just like Kelly does yeah. and, and just like all of the folks at Georgia State. That's yeah. why you all teach at Georgia State. Um, you know, and, and so that's that's How do you find that's time? why I love that. Because you're also a good dad with two teenage daughters. <laughs> So, yeah, it's a lot of juggling. I think a lot of this has fallen on Kelly over the past month, you know, but I'm, I'm able to, to see Carolina drive her to school um, every day and Lucy the same thing. And I make sure I got to make time to, to go see them in terms of work. Uh, my colleagues are, are have been great and have, have been picking up the slack. But in part, one of the reasons why they brought me to the firm um, was to raise its profile. And uh, I don't think you could talk about a higher profile. No, now, no, you um, can't. Than, <laughs> I think that I think that's than, right. Then going on. So, so John and Ramsey and our entire firm is GSU grads, which is great, except for me. And they're all GSU. They're all law review, except for me. Right. Um, so it's kind of funny <laughs> to say that. Uh, and I should mention that one of your one, one of your partners is the this is hard to explain the nephew of our second dean and the dean that hired me at Georgia State, um, Marjorie Knowles, who sadly passed a, a while back. But yeah. you 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 work with Cooper Knowles, right? Who Ramsey? Was, I work for Ramsey. Who I don't think is related, but yeah. My um, sorry. We, uh, that's okay. We can edit that out. That's a podcast. But yeah, but um, but yeah, but, but um, no, Ram, Ramsey's great. Uh, John Gallant, great. They're, everybody at our firm is former big firm. Everybody is is uh, for so we we can give our clients the sophisticated legal work that they would get at a Bonder Honor or a King and Spaulding. Are um, the skills? So are the so so? I've talked a little bit in my life about teaching a let's say eighty person survey con law one class. And being on CNN or MS, whatever, um, being, being on TV or radio. Um, and they, they are, they are slightly different skills. Um, I, I think everybody who talks to anyone ever publicly should want to entertain that person. You're great at that because you're naturally funny. Um, but I think Thank that's, you. that, that's a really important thing. But teaching 89, you know, 80 students in con law is different than being on CNN. Um, sure. Do you, do you find the, 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 the overlap between lawyer and pundit difficult? 
Not really. Um, I try to maintain, you know, I, I, if I have any biases, they're pro prosecution, right? Um, and so that might that might come through, and I and I try to watch for that. I I'm, right. I uh, stay away from the politics, yeah. um, because I, I don't want somebody who's listening to me to think that my you know my, what I'm saying is uh, uh, kind of shielded in that way, and I think my partners appreciate that as well. I mean, I you know I have clients who support the former president. Sure. I have clients who can't stand him, and and sure. I'm not here to tell them how to vote. I'm here to work right. on their legal problem right. and and help right. them solve a business issue that they have, um, either through you know pleadings or through trial. At the end of the day, that really is what I do. Is I try cases on behalf of businesses. Um, so, so yeah, I stay out of that, and I don't need a juror like if I if I if somebody happens to recognize me midway through a trial, going, oh, that guy loves President Trump, or that guy hates you know, former President Trump, and so I don't believe a word he's saying. I, I don't need that sort of cognitive bias sure. affecting my clients. So that that's where I draw the line. All right, so we, we're almost out of time, Chris. This has been great. I, I I know my audience has learned a tremendous amount, and so have I. I don't know how much you're, you're keeping in contact with the other three cases, but I assume some at least. Um, a little bit, yeah. It's my view, knowing nothing about criminal law, it's my view um, because I did work um, on a classified document part of the Iran-Contra case involving ex-President Reagan while Bush was president. So I have a lot of knowledge about that issue. And to me, the Florida case is just unbelievably strong. Leaving aside the judge at issue, don't comment on that. But I mean, just from what I know, everybody's innocent to proven guilty in court. But not in the media. <laughs> and um, right. I, I, I'm telling I wrote a blog post about this. I mean, he, he did it. I mean, you can't do it. He did. It's against the law. Um, do you have a sense of which of these four cases is the most important and which is the, the easiest to win? Or do you want to comment on that? Can you comment on that? Yeah, I mean, so first of all, I think it's a baller move to have a chandelier in your bathroom. I'm just going <laughs> to leave that out there. But um, but but right. um, getting I mean, you know, so it's there where I look at them is from a, a jury perspective mm-hmm. um, that the most important and when i teach jury selection both the full class and just the one you know three hour class that we do in advocacy the most important decision or the most important part of any decision is the decider um, if you grew up in a two-parent household, you know that. Uh, or if you got kids in a two-parent household, yes. you go to if you want something. My if kids I know car, that. I got Believe a mom, me, I go to dad. <laughs> yeah, and and uh, sometimes we punt by saying go ask your mother, but yeah. but it's uh, but yeah, that's and so you you know that. And so where I'm looking at this is not necessarily the strongest case, but I'm looking at the strongest jury pool. Um, so yeah, the classified documents case is there, but implicit bias is a thing. And and I, I mean, I think as we talked about it before, the probably the strongest case I have ever had, the best one, the classified documents case. There was no question this guy was guilty. I lost because we made. I listened to somebody that I shouldn't have during jury selection and kept the juror on, and I think she tainted the rest of them. Wow. Um, so you know that's that can happen to you and so i i'm paying more attention to the jury pool than i am ultimately what what the facts of the case are um because as i said before you supply the emotion they'll supply the logic and and will and jurors will twist logic i mean you go talk to them afterwards and you try to figure out how they reached a verdict and it's almost scary Normally, they get the right result. I, I take issue with the result in the case that I lost. I think they absolutely got it wrong, sure. but I'm not going to criticize them for that. That's that's a part of our system, and I'm glad they I'm glad they got it in the right direction too. I mean, if if, if a jury's going to get it wrong, let's get it wrong in favor of a defendant rather than in favor of the state. Sure, sure. And I I do think most studies show juries take their job pretty seriously, right? I mean, that's what most studies show. 
Yeah. Oh yeah, no, no. I mean, every once in a while you catch somebody sleeping, but I'm yeah. not worried about them. I mean, they're, they're they when you're picking a jury, you're looking for leaders, um, and there are. I, we did a mock jury in one of the cases, and the person who was clearly the leader reached out to somebody who was not a leader, and we knew he was instantly a leader because he asked this person what their opinion was, and he he gave an opinion on one side, and then the leader said, "Well, I think that's wrong. I think it's blah 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 blah," and the the, the other guy's like, "Yeah, no, you're right. I'm totally with you." Right. <laughs> so, no. So 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 that's my a sheep. Right. My, my dad was picked for a jury and my dad was a pretty successful businessman publicly in Boston and he was picked for a jury and it happened to be like a white collar crime type of criminal case. Sure. And and from the sec my dad said he tried everything in his power. Like they knew what his job was because they'd asked him what his job was. He tried everything in his power not to be that guy who leads the jury, but they all looked at him the entire time and they were going to do what he did. Yeah. And they did do what he did, it turns out. Um, that's kind of yeah. scary that one juror could have that much power. Yeah, and that's where that's when you're thinking about your peremptory strikes. That's yeah. and that's what I teach my students is you got to identify leaders. Don't don't use peremptory strikes on followers. Um, you know, and we kind of have a matrix where everybody falls. Uh, you know, one axis is the leadership. One, the other axis is how receptive they are to your case, or the flip side of that, how receptive they are to your opponent's case. And so you've got your sign of four quads, and really the quads that you care about are the ones that are the heavy leaders. So you want to protect the leaders. You can't protect them from peremptory strikes when you're in a case, but you can protect them from cause strikes, right. you know, get them to say they're going to be fair, force the other side to use one of their precious strikes to get rid of that leader. Right. But then the other thing is when you're looking at your own peremptory strikes, you're trying to get them out for cause, but if you can't, then you want to make sure that you're identifying leaders. Don't use a strike on a, on a sheep. Don't care about them. Let them fill up space in the jury box. They're not going to be a part of the deliberations. You really are talking about four to I mean, anywhere from one to four people that are going to be making the decision at the end of the day, despite the fact that there are 12. That is fascinating stuff. Chris, I thank you so much for doing that. I see why you become a TV star, because you're really good at this. Um, I'd like to have a you savant, back. Much like the former president. Thank I'd you. Like, <laughs> no, but you you have skill. Whatever he has, it comes innately. <laughs> I don't know what that is. Um, Chris, I'd like to have you back maybe in April or May when we have more, sure. you know, the, when these cases are going and full throttle. And um, I don't know. Can, I, can we play poker? I mean, because, you know, we used to be in the same game. I think we had to play poker and have some uh, – bring in Neil Kinkoff and, you know, have some whiskey. Hey, I'm a big Texas Hold'em guy. I I, uh, I want to say, for the record, in my podcast, I was playing Texas Hold'em a decade before it was ever on TV in the late 80s in Las Vegas when when you could win a Texas Hold'em because everybody was a stupid tourist who didn't know how to play poker. Then it came on TV and everybody's an expert. And it's much And it's much harder. And on that note, Chris, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Eric. I appreciate your time. Thank you.